I have been uh, extremely blessed uh, to have a phenomenal mother, uh, one that from like day one uh, was for me and for my brother, uh, for our flourishing, for our development, for our growth, and so I'm completely indebted to her. Uh, I've also been uh, extremely gifted to have Verity become the greatest mother I've ever seen, and so she's like truly like awkwardly good, like I don't like it sometimes, I feel like inept, um, but she's incredible, and so just to honor both these women. Um, but to honor you all, I, I did write a letter. Sometimes uh, it's easier for me to process through some thoughts uh, if I write. And so I wrote this letter to y'all uh, and to moms even outside the room, uh, as there are a litany of, of different moms from different backgrounds, and you have different stories. And so let me read this to you, and then uh, and we're going to pray one more time. We're going to jump in the Word together. So it says this. To all you moms out there, thank you. We quite literally would not be here without you. We celebrate you, respect you, and we love you. You fight and contend for your kids day in and day out, and we see you and we say thank you. Yet we also remind ourselves so much of your toil goes unseen because it is a war waged in your heart, your mind, and your soul. Daily, you shoulder the burden physically and emotionally of the successes and failures hopes, dreams, and diets of those you've been given by God. Thank you. Thank you for the prayers, for the wisdom, for the direction, and for the never-ending consideration. Your strength and fortitude amidst the always of your role is nothing short of awesome. Thank you. Thank you not that you're perfect, but that you are ours. God's gift of grace and privilege to needy children. Thank you. Now, also though, to the mom that hears this morning and feels she has failed, that shame is on your doorstep, that feels she does not deserve a flower today. You are forgiven and free in our Lord, and there is always hope in the story God wants to write tomorrow. We love you and thank you. To the birth mother who, through events brought about by systemic sin, has lost the children she does love to the foster care system. You are not your past. You are not the sum of your failures. You are God's image, and today is a new day. We love you. Thank you. To the woman who desperately wants children of her own, but has been labeled infertile, we grieve with you. You are not less. You are not forgotten. You are loved, and you are a gift. Thank you. To the grandmother who, after watching her own children succumb to substance abuse, is now raising her own grandchildren, you're a hero. And we lament with you the heavy weight of today and offer every support that we can. We love you and thank you. To the foster mom, who after loving on a child for three months, watches as they are reunified just a week ago and their once child-filled home is now empty. Your loss is real, even if you knew this was coming. You are stronger than you know. How else could you have done what you have done? You are loved, thank you. To the woman who has kept her abortion secret, but knows exactly how old her child would be this Mother's Day. You are loved and you are welcome here. God has been and God walks beside you. To the mother who is celebrated with cards and gifts, and to the mother that while seeing this is not. We see you, we hear you, and we thank you and we love you. Lastly, to the child today that mourns because a mother is no longer here or perhaps never was. We are not a replacement, but we are a family. We can't be the one to fill that gap, but we will be 
the one to point you to the one who can thank you. To all you mothers, grandmothers, stepmothers, mothers-in-laws of all kinds and all stories, we say thank you and we love you. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we're reminded today of your grace to us, God, through a day that we get to celebrate for moms everywhere, of all kinds, of all stories. And God, we're reminded that it is your act of grace that draws us together today, that causes us to celebrate, that gives us and grants us continued life, purpose, forgiveness, grace, mercy, hope, and the desire to continue in this life. And so, Lord, we do pray that today would be a day that your church would be your church all across our world, and that we would remember consistently the favor of God as shown through the gift of motherhood, but God, as shown through the gift of your presence and your change in our life. And so, God, would you meet us and shape us and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, thanks for letting me read that to you. I love you guys. Uh, each one of those stories that we read, they're actual stories that we have going on in Redemption Church. And so uh, not necessarily all here at Redemption Flagstaff, but across our congregations. And so um, these are just real stories that are out there. Uh, some of you are part of those. Some of you are not. Um, but wherever your story is, even if I missed it, I want you to know uh, that you are loved here and we're, we're really grateful to have you. So um, today we're doing something kind of continuing off of last week. If you weren't here, Anthony filled in on one day notice. Uh, I was sick last weekend, so a round of applause for Anthony for stepping in in less than 24 hours uh, and doing what I thought was a phenomenal job. And I'll say this, if you missed last week's sermon, I want to highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. I mean, here's why. The content was, was great, as, as usual with Ant. Um, Anthony, I call him Ant. Uh, and so with Anthony. Um, but I know Anthony, right? Like, I know this guy well. And what made last week so powerful is I know he believes every single word. Um, and, and what drives this man uh, is a desire that the world would know Jesus. And so, I mean, if you could go back even and just re-listen through the lens of like, this guy knows what he's talking about, this guy lives this. And so, and again, thanks, thanks for doing that. And so this week, we kind of transition from this kind of individual pushing and pursuing of how do we preach Christ to the world that they would know individually to now how do we do it corporately? How will the, wor- the world see the good news of Jesus through the corporate church through us gathered, the assembly, the display people of God. Now, uh, recently I was talking to my wife, and uh, she was sharing with me a talk that she had recently listened to uh, by an author, speaker named Brene Brown. And if you're not familiar with her, man, please go listen to some of her stuff, read some of her books. It's really, really good stuff, really helpful stuff. Um, But she was talking about in this talk uh, about this moment where she saw this clip that you can find on YouTube, and I was going to play it, but I was like, I just don't want to uh, kind of take that much time, but it's, it's a clip of Liverpool Football Club playing in Australia. Okay, now, um, if you haven't realized yet, I'm like awkwardly in love with Liverpool Football Club, okay? Like awkwardly. And the fact, uh, they played this morning to, to see whether or not they will qualify for the Champions League next year. If you know the score and you tell me, I will kill you. Like that's not, it's literal, that's literal, okay? Uh, and so, okay, death threats from your pastor. That's what we're, that's what we've reduced to, okay? Um, so I love Liverpool Football Club. And so what it is is this, this, uh, this clip of 92, I think it's 92,000 fans packed into the Olympic Stadium in Sydney, Australia. Every single one a fan of Liverpool, okay? 
and they're singing their anthem song, You'll Never Walk Alone. Now, they do this at the beginning and at the end of every single one of their matches in Liverpool, England, when they play any team, or even the traveling fans in the foreign, uh, the foreign stadiums, right? And so you watch this clip, and they just go from person to person to person and pan around the stadium, and you have 92 thousand individuals, most of which don't know each other, look completely different, would probably not want to sit down and have any type of friendship with the other person. But for some reason, when that song gets playing, the arms go up, right? And the scarves get pulled out and the chants begin. And all of a sudden, 92,000 fans in unison sing a song they all know, praising something bigger than themselves. And it's a brilliant clip. Even if you're not a fan, like, there's just something moving about this reality that all of these people from different backgrounds, they look different, they act different, they have different stories, and there's this thing that unites them all where with banners raised high, they would say, you'll never walk alone. Okay, so I watched this clip, and I'm like, that's the church. Like, that's, that's us. Like, that's our thing. They stole our thing. Like, that's what we do. We, we sing to something greater than ourselves. What a beautiful picture of the church. And I was like, actually, that's more beautiful than often what we look like. And I began to think, like, I mean, there's such a love for this soccer team, and what did this soccer team truly do for my life, uh, aside from the weekly joy or absolute despair when we lose? Uh, not much, right? I begin to think about the corporate worship setting and the, and the setting of the church as we gather to come together. And where are our hearts, right? So forget about the action. I won't talk about the external outward action. I don't think you guys need to raise your hands when you're here. If you want to raise hands, great. If you want to dance, great. If you don't, whatever. But I'm saying, what's going on in our heart? Because I know the heart flutter that I got watching that clip. I don't always get when we're here. And so I began to kind of just question myself a little bit. Uh, I, I questioned kind of just where are we at? Like, do, what do we believe about Jesus? And I just had this whole kind of existential thing watching this, this little clip. And I said, man, that, that, this is a beautiful vision of the church. And so um, that, that kind of leads me to think through what we want to talk about today. How do we reclaim some of that? Right? Like, like, what does it look like for the church to live unto and into this type of beautiful reality where people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and, and, uh, and people would be able to gather and, and with hands raised high declare a banner of something that is greater than ourselves? Okay? Now, building off of last week, Anthony kind of focused more on kind of the individualized nature of this, that we are to preach the gospel through our individualistic lives, that you have friends and you have family, you have coworkers, people that you're supposed to use your mouth and your deeds to show them Jesus. Now, this is a mandate from Scripture, yet the most recent Pew Research study says that only 21% of Christian adults in America feel it is a responsibility of the Christian to share the gospel. Okay, so one in five Christian adults in our nation think that something that is mandated in Scripture is something we are to be responsible for. So this is, this is a difficult reality. If the whole thing is like God's trying to present himself to the world, but only one in five of the people who claim to be followers of that guy, we have issues. And it's surprising. Because I think oftentimes, and we love sharing good news, like, it's the best to share good news. I love giving good news to people. When you hear things and you're like, man, I would love to share that with this person. 
Sometimes even we're proactive with it, right? Like in relationships, I, like I know very well. So when Verdi and I, we get the kids down, right? Uh, kind of divide and conquer. She goes one direction, I go the other. We get the kids down. Stuff gets a bit quieter. We tidy up the house. And we finally get to sit down around the couch around 9 o'clock. And that's when we start to pray and fast and meditate or watch a show. Um, <laughs> either or. And, um, and there'll be a moment where usually, I'm talking like probably it feels like every other night, she looks up and just says, I just want chocolate. Right? right? I just want chocolate. And in that moment, right, what I've done is I know this is a reality. So I have a hidden stash of chocolate in the house, right? And I get to go, here you go, right? And her face is like elated, right? And I get to be the savior of that moment. I'm like, okay, you want good news? This is what you desire? Bam, chocolate bar, okay? Husband of the year. We love to share good news. Oftentimes, we even coordinate ways to be able to make sure we can present that news to people when we know they want something. So the question becomes like, what do we not believe about the gospel? It must not be all that good, right? Because if I'm like so excited to share a chocolate bar with my wife who just wants something to relax after a long day with me and the kids, how much more? So it begs the question, church, of what are we missing about the good news? And has it just become news? Uh, maybe, maybe for some of us, is, is it even news or is it just speculation for some of us? And I think there's this constant need for the church to at moments like this, especially when we can approach Scripture, to constantly reassess what does the church believe, Right? What do we rally on? What will we hold high amidst 92,000 fans and scream proudly, this is who we are? And then Paul's going to give us the opportunity to be able to step into that today. Now, um, you'll often hear the church referred to, and I'll talk about it a handful of times today, the church is to be a display people, right? Like when you walk through the mall, which not many of us do anymore because malls are on their way out. Thanks, Bezos. Um, when you walk through a mall, there's a display in the storefront, right? And the whole purpose of the display is to draw you in, right? Oh, man, that looks really nice. I love what they've done with that. So let me see what's behind the doors. And this is what the church is. The church is meant to be a display people, that when they look at the storefront of the church, the way we interact, the way we love, the way that we celebrate, the way that we worship, the way that we sacrifice, they would say, man, what's behind that? What's the kingdom stuff that's behind the church? That's what we're called to be. Display people that at all times, man, as people are walking by, they see that and say, man, what's going on there? Okay, what's going on there? I don't know if you guys remember the store Abercrombie and Fitch. Are those still a thing? Like, I don't know if those are even still stores. But uh, I remember when Abercrombie and Fitch first came out. I was living in Southern California, and, uh, you know, they, they try and attract kind of this Southern California vibe. And so what do they do? What's their front display is usually a super fit dude with a shirt off, right? Wearing sunglasses in the mall, right? Which makes you think, oh, must be a tool store. And so, uh, <laughs> just kidding. And so... Some of you will get there eventually. And so, you know, you see this guy, and what's he, they're trying to exude a certain reality. Southern California, kind of hip and cool and trendy and beachy, and that's what you want. And that's exactly what you got if you went in there, right? Like, that's the entire vibe of that place. 
And so hear me, like church, I want, I want to ask us this question. I want you to think through this, okay? What do you think people think when they look at us? Okay? When the world is looking at the church, what are they thinking? Okay. What are we displaying that's eliciting those thoughts? Okay? And are they the thoughts we want them to think? Is it causing people to run through the doors to come see about the product, right, that, that we possess? Jesus, the gospel. Or is it causing them to run away and say, man, whatever this display is, I want no part of it. These are just helpful questions for us to think through and reassess consistently because if we are to be the faithful presence of the church, we have to understand. We have to know. We have to be able to investigate. And also realize this is not a new problem, that these type of issues have been there since day one. We have bought into and have been subverted by lesser stories since the beginning. I'm talking Genesis chapter 3, right? Everything was perfect. Okay, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But God creates Adam and he creates Eve and says, man, listen, I want you guys to go and I want you to cultivate and have dominion and I want you to make this place a beautiful display of my glory. And then Genesis 3 happens, and we are, the term I'm going to coin it, we were Satanized, right? Evil and sin lure us and win us, and it still does today. Fast forward through the story, looking at a few more points. You go from the book of Joshua kind of on through into Judges and Kings and Samuel, and it's this idea where then the people of God were supposed to go into the world, right, and influence the land which was called home, Canaan. But as we studied in the book of Judges last year, instead of us influencing them, we were influenced by them and we were Canaanized. So not just evil and sin the worst way, but culture wins us easily. So we succumb to the cultural whims of the day. You look at the continued story, we get into post-Jesus, about 300 years after Christ. There's an emperor that's serving over Rome named Constantine. And Constantine has this incredible conversion story, so it's written. And so he dictates that in order for you to live in the Roman Empire now, you must absolutely have to be a Christian. And what happens is all of a sudden Christianity went from this, man, lay down your life, sacrificial, you could die, but it's true, and so follow it to, no, you better do this. And there were two major impacts on the church. One, the bar was lowered for the church because there was no longer a need to be a display people because everyone was Christian now, right? Everyone, everyone believed already, so why the display aspect of the church went away? Because everyone was Christian, so they said. The other part is all of a sudden the glory of an earthly kingdom trumped the glory of a heavenly one, right? And so it was the glory of Rome all of a sudden added itself and brought in its subversion into the church, and so they began to care more about the success of the empire as opposed to the success of the church and its mission. And then just over the last 300 years, we're talking the Enlightenment up to and through the 20th century, this kind of movement of being modernized, right? Being westernized by our culture that says, no, 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 guess what? You are the center, okay? There's nothing out there. There's nothing bigger than you. The individual is king. 
it pitted all of a sudden reason and faith against one another when they were never enemies. <coughs> and the church has bought hook, line, and sinker into that as well. And lastly, we've been postmodernized. All of a sudden, it's not just that the individual is king, but it's the individual's beliefs are king. There is no longer kind of a corporate sense of, of truth and understanding. It's whatever you kind of believe for that day, well, that's going to be good, and that's true for you, and the church has kind of bought into this as well. And so, <clears throat> man, I got something in my throat. Throughout history, the church has continued to buy into false stories and false narratives, and they have caused us to lose our identity. And we cannot reclaim it. It cannot be realized unless we acknowledge it. Okay. <coughs> Can someone get me a cup of water? That would be super helpful. I don't know if anyone's out there to do that, but that'd be awesome. Okay. So if all these things are true, we need to bring all of that into what Paul is trying to share with the Ephesian church. Okay. Because what we're going to read here in the continuation in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, is Paul's encouragement to the Ephesian church to not lose what the church is supposed to be about. Okay? Now, we exist 2,000 years later, and so there's still lessons for us to be learned. I even say there's even more so given some of the cultural trends over the last 2,000 years and what it's meant for the church that we need to reclaim and re-realize. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Let's jump in the text. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, okay? So notice those first words, so that, right? So everything Anthony talked about last week, all this kind of individual graced reality, the privilege of being able to preach Christ to the world is all culminating so that the church in its splendor and its display could present itself to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh -uh. Sorry, guys. Maybe that strep is still there and all you guys are sick. Okay. <laughs> still in view here, right, in this text is everything we've been talking about over the last three or four weeks, right? But this church... Okay, the church that God is bringing together, that Paul is preaching about, is this diverse, it's this reality of people from every background and tribe, and we're talking male, female, white, black, brown, rich, poor, the entire gamut of, of social reality, all brought into one place as the people of God, okay? So this is the church, right, that he's now saying, this church is to be the manifold wisdom of God, the presentation of the manifold wisdom of God, manifold being kind of multifaceted, that there's all aspects to the wisdom of God. And when we talk wisdom of God, the word literally there means like the truth of what is true, like saying what is true about what is true. It's namely focused on God's mission and God's character, right? That the church is meant to, in all facets, because of its diversity, it cannot be done outside of its diversity. The church must come together, right? Why? Because we have to present a multifaceted God with a multifaceted church, and we can't do that separate. And so God is joining us together. We've been talking about this for weeks. Hopefully this isn't super new for us. But God is drawing us together. Why? That we would present a multifaceted God to the world. And that's why I love, that's why I love the church. And I, I, that's why I love Redemption Church. Because man, like, there's so many people here. 
that like, I know we disagree about a whole litany of stuff, okay? But nothing of significant consequence, nothing that I think would draw us unto a different understanding of Jesus and his mission in the world and the gospel. And even, even amongst our staff, right, that we've talked about this, there's, this, there's differences and there's nuance. As a staff, we did this thing, I can't remember what it was called, it was like the, some type of Myers-Briggs Briggs test thing, I don't know if you guys have ever done one of those. Um, what they do is they have you kind of all get in a circle, uh, or you set up kind of rather this circle, and then you all stand in one corner, and there's four quadrants that you have to work through, okay? And the idea is how do you solve problems? And listen, I, I'm not going to get all the details, but essentially the whole point is to show by based on which quadrant you're standing in, how close or how similar or how different you are with the people on your team. And let's just say I stood in quadrant two for 33 minutes, while everyone else stayed in the first quadrant for about 25 and then moved right past me, right? Like, I just stayed in this one place, and it just showed us, like, I am insignificantly different from everyone else on our team. And that's a good thing, right? Like, it's a good thing for us to have different thoughts and inputs and personalities and backgrounds and stories because that's who God is. And that's who we have to present to the world manifold reality of who he is that requires the whole assembly. And hear me, not just here in this space, but the ones down the street, right? The ones down the freeway, the ones across state lines, the ones internationally, that together we weave this larger picture of a God that is bigger than us and a kingdom that is more powerful than we, okay? Now, in the midst of that, there's a seemingly kind of strange audience that arises at the end of verse 10. I've often always read this. We've got made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's kind of blown through that. It's like, oh, that just means kind of the rulers and authorities of our day, like the world is watching. But it's not saying that. It's saying the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. And so what's going on here is saying that the church is to show the manifold wisdom. Why? That it would make known who God is and his plan and his perfection to the angelic right, to a supernatural realm that looks in upon our world and says, what's God going to do now? Let me watch the church. If the calling wasn't already heavy enough that the world is watching us, now to know there's a whole other realm that looks in on the activity of the church to say, who is God? So it's fascinating to me that God in desire to make known who he is and what he's doing to the angels and to the demons, to a supernatural realm we cannot see, he tells them, look what the church is doing. That is just a crazy, heavy, weighty calling. So what do we do with that, okay? Let's talk more on this plan. Let's talk more on this plan. Verse 11. This was according, this entire plan that God's doing, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is something that's been going on forever. It's not like Jesus showed up and then Jesus thought, you know what, we need some help, so let's start the church. Listen, the church, this idea of a display people is God's eternal plan, his eternal purpose. In other words, he's been thinking about this forever. Like we can't even fathom, forever this has been in his mind that he would gather a people that would display himself to the world. Again, we see it all the way back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God draws together and creates humanity in his image to image him to the world. 
where he creates Adam first and says, you know what? That's actually not going to work. So you know what we need to do? We need to create Eve. We need to create male and female. And together, they're going to display me to the world. That there had to be diversity. It couldn't be just one guy that wasn't enough. So male and female. You fast forward to uh, Genesis chapter 11, and this thing happens called the Tower of Babel. Right, where the people begin to think themselves something. And so God strikes them down and scatters them across the world, giving new language and new culture and new look all across the world. And here's what I love, is the next exact act that we get in Genesis chapter 12 is God saying, okay, now with the scattered people, how are we going to do this? I'm going to raise up a family. So he calls out Abram and says, hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. So God said, okay, it's going to scatter. There's going to be different backgrounds, different things. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to cause one, I'm going to raise them up to be a display people that the whole world would see and would know about me. See, God's been developing a display people. Listen, hear me. Church, this is what your identity is. Your identity is not this service, okay? Your identity is not just a redemption flagstaff attender. Like, you're part of something far greater that God has been writing since the foundation of the cosmos. His eternal purpose to craft a display people. This is our identity. It is our purpose, and it's been lost. We have to realize it once again because that's exactly what's happened. In Jesus, it's been realized that all the promises of the Old Testament, these things, right? When, when God said to Abraham, it's not going to take you into the, the land, right, that is flowing with milk and honey, right? Which sounds phenomenal, okay? Right? I guess unless you're vegan, <laughs> then it's awful, right? Like, but why? Not that they would have tons of milk and tons of honey. It was that they would have a home base with which to let the world know who God is. The Sunday moment, hear me, this is not church. Okay? This is a moment for the church to gather to go back out and display Jesus to the world. They've lost their identity. And the church, listen, I said the world and the heavenlies need us to reclaim it. Realized in Christ, notice that in verse 11, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, that this entire plan all culminated in Jesus. Because in Christ, as we studied this a couple weeks ago, every what dividing wall of hostility was torn down. There was no longer fracture between us and God, there was no longer fracture between us and each other. And so God could finally, in the midst of that, craft and build this all-encompassing, diverse, every tribe, nation, people, and tongue to present the manifold, multifaceted, beautiful character and plan of our Lord and Savior. That story is so much more compelling than the, I guess I should go to this church event. Church, we, we are on this insane, cosmic, eternal mission. And we forget it all the time. 
and we need to constantly push back into and remind each other that that is exactly what we're part of. Now, if I'm in Ephesus, and even a bit now, even as I'm preaching to myself this week, because this, I think, honestly, if I believe this too, it asks things of me I don't know if I'm ready to give up, right? It, it asks of me more than maybe I want to allow it, okay? And yet, here's something beautiful in verse 12 talking about Jesus. It says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, oftentimes this gets read as, hey, you're a Christian now, so you just be bold, right? Like, you're bold now, and some of you are like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm not bold at all. I'm very shy. I don't want to talk to anyone. Now, let's be very clear what the text is doing. Don't read this as, you're a Christian now, so that means you're bold. No, because notice who's the object of the boldness and the access. It's not you. You're not receiving boldness in this text. He's saying, no, you have boldness and access to Jesus. Like you can approach him fully because you're fully cleansed. You're free to come boldly before the throne room of God and entreat him and talk to him and experience his counsel and love and grace. You have access to Jesus when we didn't. We are brought into the family of God. Boldness and access, right? These beautiful realities. All this culminated what? In faith in him. And this is where I think we get off kilter. I think this is one of the messages today that we falsely buy into. It's because we often hear not, hey, faith in him. It's have faith in yourself. Okay? Believe more in you. You can do it. Have faith in yourself. Listen, what I'm about to say doesn't mean hate yourself, but also at the same time, that's absolute foolishness and anti-Bible. Because what Paul's talking about is not, not have faith in yourself. All of this, this boldness, it's have faith in him. You, you have faith in Jesus. I don't have faith in me. You know why I don't have faith in me? Because I know me. Because I know I want to love this incredible mother, this incredible wife of mine, way better than I do, and I resolve to do it until the next time I fail. I don't have faith in me. Paul didn't either. In Romans chapter 7, Paul goes on this long, kind of like 10-sentence long diatribe about how, and I don't know why I can't stop doing that which I know I'm not supposed to do. And that which I want to do, I... I won't do. And, I want, and he just goes on this long thing about how he's having this own kind of kerfuffle of, I can't figure this out. Paul didn't have faith in himself. He had faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is worthy of having faith placed in him. I'm not. I know me. So all this has to be centered around that. Now, some of this you might be saying, gosh, like, this is kind of Debbie Downer. This is a little bit, a little bit kind of morose. Let's read this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. This is Paul writing another letter to the church in Corinth. And I love this passage, and he says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, ready, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of the manifold wisdom of God embodied in the flesh. We now show him and display him to the world together. Through faith, through the trust and the access and the boldness we have to come to God. Listen, God's doing far greater things with far less than we'd ever imagine. And this confounds the mind. Because when you start thinking through success in this world, it's like, no, develop the most skilled team, which is great. And listen, if you're, in the, you're running a business and you're doing stuff, like, I'm not saying, like, get everyone who's terrible. Like, you know, Jay, your contractor, don't hire people who don't know how to build stuff, right? Okay? That would be foolish. But that's not what God did. God took a whole bunch of messy people, people of status and power, He took the lowly, he took the downtrodden, he took the ostracized, he took the broken, he took the sick, and he said, I'm going to make something beautiful out of you. So here's why this is good news for us today, because we could hear, hey, church, we got to reclaim it, we got to reclaim it, we got to reclaim it, and think to ourselves, man, I better be perfect, I better do it right, I got to get this all right. And he's like, no! Just be yourself, but try and be faithful to Jesus because it's not dependent, okay, upon your success. It's dependent upon him. So we don't have faith in ourselves, and we have, we have faith in Jesus. And guess what? If you look at the early church, and you look at Paul's life, you look at, listen, when they directed their faith towards him, believe me, boldness and confidence and identity and justification and self-worth and self-value and the image of God and all that, believe me, that came rushing in. So it's not, those, those things are great things. Have all of that but have it as you continually pursue and have faith in his work, not in our own. The calling is heavy, so thank God that Jesus has done the work for us. And so we just come and we say, Jesus, I'm yours, I'm yours, I'm yours. How do we live like you? How do we display you to the world? Okay. Now, um, we call that gospel centrality. We call that being gospel-centered here at the church. Like, make the gospel, make Jesus, faith in him, not in your abilities, right? Not in who you are. No, no, no. Make that the central aspect of what drives absolutely everything you do. And then the second piece, we say gospel-centered and outward focus. Here's verse 13, the second piece, which I think the church has to reclaim as we continue to walk out trying to be a faithful presence and to display people in the world. Verse 13 says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, ready? Which is your glory. Okay, I'm going to read that again. I ask you, listen, don't lose hearts over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, okay? Why is Paul in chains? Why is Paul suffering? Why has Paul been beaten and scourged and laid down status and power and wealth? Why is he doing these things? For the glory of the other, okay? William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says this, The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. I love that vision. And that is what we get from Scripture. 
that the church is like, okay, Jesus, you're everything. That the gospel is everything. It has secured me. It has secured me not just here, but eternally. And so guess what? I'll lay it all down. And so what we get in verse 13 is Paul saying, yes, I get the gospel. I'm so secure in the gospel. You know why I'm suffering? Don't feel bad. I'm doing it for your glory. That the church exists for the sake of the other. And listen, our witness, my doubts about what we're displaying, and is it what people are coming and clamoring for the gospel? Right? Are they wanting to come in and see you know, what's behind these doors? What's the kingdom of God about? I don't think we're going to get to where we want to be if we keep thinking that this whole Christianity thing is about us. When I became Christian, like, I thought it was about me. And hear me, it's not entirely not about me. God loves me and, and died for me, and, and all, all that stuff is true, right? God justifies me and sanctifies me and will glorify me, and I will be with him forever, along with you. But the purpose and the mission of the church, once you're in, is not you. It's the other. And if we don't believe that, we're never going to be the display and the witness that God intended for the church to be. The vision, the identity of the church is something so much more profound and beautiful than some events that we get to go to. Christian, if you're here, I, and I don't, some of you just might be visiting and you're just like, what is going on? Okay? Christian, if you're here, you're part of something far greater than this. And once you step outside these doors, you're back at it, man. This is, a, this is supposed to be a rallying moment for us to be built up in the gospel, to go back out and lay it down for the sake of the glory of the other, not the glory of self. Now, I'll say one last little caveat before I land. Some of you are, are, are believers in here, and you're just beaten down, and you're like you're just in it, right? And you're like, I, I don't have energy to stand up right now, friend. And I'm, we're here for you too, right? So some some of you, right? Like you just you've been running so hard, or there's just life and and the sinful reality of a broken world has brought about things in your life that right now you're like, look, dude. Okay, I believe you from a theological standpoint, but I can't get through the day right now, okay? Listen, we exist for you too, okay? The beautiful reality of the church is this constant coming up underneath one another to try and serve and try and love and to try and care more about the other's glory than our own. Individually, we do that for one another. Corporately, we do that for the world the world would know that they also are part of a greater story than they'd ever believe. But they have to be able to see it. Amen? Like, like they have to be able to see something, especially with the direction of our culture. It's not just known anymore, guys. People just don't know about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection anymore. 
The more times I'm talking with people here in our city, that is getting farther and farther and farther away from the reality. Like, like it's not, I'm not, I'm not even exactly, people do not know. You say Jesus, they're like, I think he was some good guy. So, church, what are we going to do? Man, I hope it starts with this huge, just movement of love towards Jesus, a movement of faith towards what he's done, that the gospel would be the central reality of everything in your life, and that then we would realize that the missional identity is to think about others before ourselves. I want to be that kind of church. Like, I, I want that to be our identity. I hope you guys do, too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. And, and Lord, that you are super faithful in the midst of, uh, at times, God, I know my own faithlessness. And so, um, Lord, I, I don't think it was my faith or, or me uh, working hard enough to believe that, that got me saved, Lord. So I don't think it's going to be my faith that's going to get me, uh, Lord, to be able to walk this out either. And so, Lord, we ask for the movement of your spirit to convict and to show us great and wonderful things and reveal yourself more and more and to grow our faith, Lord, that we would be so focused on what you're doing, not on ourselves. God, you're trying to show your beauty to the world. And I, God, I pray that we would just be part of that. Part of this eternal mission, God, you've been trying to accomplish. God, you are beautiful and faithful, and we thank you for all the work that you're doing. Oftentimes in spite of us, Lord, but thank you for letting us be a part. And Lord, we pray... Uh, we pray, God, that you would give us the grace necessary to love you and to follow you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.